Welcome back to What's On Your Mind. I'm Dr. Gene Bresson. And I'm Dr. Steve Schlossman. And we're child psychiatrists at the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Here's what we'll talk about today. Today, we'll be talking about one of the most difficult and problematic problems in society today, alcohol, drugs, and addiction. And we're delighted to have two guests, uh, Dr. John Kelly is director of the Recovery Resource Institute at Massachusetts General Hospital, and he's also program director of the Addiction Recovery Management Service. And we have Nate, who's a 25-year-old guy who's in long-term recovery. Now, let's get started. But, you know, before we talk about Nate, before we talk about your story, which we would love to hear, John, you know, we've heard so much about opiates and how deadly they are. Could you tell us a little bit about what's going on with opiates and, and why is this a, such a big problem now? And you know what? Before you even do that, why don't you define opiates? Because I'm not sure everybody knows oh, what that's, we mean that's when a we good say point. that. That's a really good point. Okay, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I think the uh, it's, it's something that we're all hearing about way too much nowadays. Um, opiates are all over the news every day. People overdosing, dying from overdose deaths. So opiates have a variety of different names that people may have heard, uh, brand names such as Vicodin or uh, Percocet or Oxycodone, Oxycontin. Heroin, of course, is a, a, a very powerful version of, of an opiate that is used medically, uh, but also, of course, misused and diverted for, um, for pleasure recreational use, uh, which which people can get addicted to. What we've seen, uh, you know, to your point, to your question, uh, Gene, is that we've seen a huge increase in the misuse and diversion of prescription opiates. And this has really led to an increase, a rise in increase of both addiction to prescription opiates as well as street heroin. And Part of the, a big part of the reason for that has been the excess availability of prescription uh, opiates. So we've had overprescribing and non-consumption of those overprescribing, um, so that people have been prescribed too many pills, really, to treat a, a pain condition that they may have had. So the result of that is that 70% of young people today are accessing these medications through the family medicine cabinet or from a friend who actually gets them from a family medicine cabinet. What happens is that Young people then who would ordinarily not try an illicit drug are trying them because they have a perception that these are prescribed and therefore safe. They take them for some people, not everybody, but for some people who may have a more of an inclination, a genetic predisposition towards liking the effect of uh, the feeling of that opiate can be rapidly seduced by those effects and can repeat the, you know, repeat the exposure to the drug, take it, and become quickly dependent. Because those are more expensive to buy on the street and that person becomes, can become quite readily hooked, they then turn to heroin, which is much cheaper and more readily available. And so this is what we've seen. We've seen a heroin epidemic emerge, which is today, you know, 50 years ago or 25 years ago, it was a minority urban problem. Now it's a suburban young white And it's problem. much more powerful now, right? I mean, and it's also cut with other, you know, potentially deadly uh, substances. It like, can be. Like fentanyl. Yeah, for sure. and, it has and, always been at various times in the past. But recently we've been hearing stories about having more potent forms yeah. of opiates like fentanyl um, that can take people by surprise and lead to uh, a, a, an overdose. You know, what's so interesting about this is um, 
it sounds like what you're saying is that this is an we have this term in medicine iatrogenic, which means we created it. So this is an iatrogenic problem, especially as it made its way out of the sort of dense urban centers. I, I got my Achilles tendon repaired, I remember, and they gave me a little bit of Percocet, and I took a little bit of Percocet. But had I not, it would end up in my family medicine cabinet. Somebody could have come over. I have teenagers and taken one and then found themselves liking that enough to try and get more. And then from there, finding that they can't afford or aren't able because their prescriptions get more. So it's not – what you're telling me is this doesn't just affect the, the sort of perception of, of opiates being a, a problem – mainly in the urban centers, where we want to take care of it, but it's gone beyond that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that changes the demographic. Like, who's affected? Who, what are we seeing mm-hmm. right now? Yeah, well, we, we've seen it shift from an older urban population, typically minority it has been in the past, to suburban young white male population. So that's who, 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 are, the, who are the addicts today, heroin addicts today most typically young white males living in suburban areas. And, and can they keep this a secret from their family? I mean, this seems like a hard thing. I, I'm basing this entirely on TV shows, so I need to come clean about well, this. Well, initially, of course, you know, people, the way that the course of addiction runs is that people do use it secretly, will use it secretly, because obviously there's a lot of stigma involved with this, and people want to continue at first um, their addiction because they're still perceiving a lot of benefit from it. But Increasingly over time, it becomes much more and more visible as the person starts to lose weight. They stop eating. Their whole life becomes completely absorbed with just getting, using, and getting over the effects of, of, of the drug. So now, John, uh, what, what's the solution? I mean, I know this is very complicated, but could you kind of briefly kind of tell us what you think might be something that we could do as a society or as, as health professionals to kind of like tackle this problem? Yeah. Well, there are, it has to be multi-pronged, uh, multi-pronged from the social policy level to prescribing practices through educating families and, and at the local uh, state and city level uh, in schools, um, educating schools about the dangers of these particular drugs. Of course, this is in the context, of course, of an endemic public health problem that we have with both alcohol and illicit drugs. Um, which has has grown uh, particularly among young people with opiates and marijuana in particular, so it has to be has to be multi multi pronged uh, gene uh, in order to address it effectively, and it has been done. Unfortunately, now now it's risen to this crisis level with opiates in particular, that all over the country states and state houses now are beginning to address it, just because so many people and particularly young people have died from overdoses. Let me ask you one thing before we get to Nate. Um, who I really want to get to. One of the things I've seen over the years, this may be a bit controversial, is the underprescription of pain medications. I mean, I've had my knees replaced, and I know that if I didn't have, and I'm very sensitive to pain. Fortunately, I didn't get addicted, but I really needed it. And I've known a number of doctors who were being watched, were all being, you know, monitored. And what would you recommend that doctors do? I mean, we want to adequately treat pain. There's been a long history of undertreating pain because we've been afraid of addiction. What happens if somebody really needs pain? What What do we do? As, no, no, no one needs the pain, needs the pain relief. No, we, need just the, to right. yeah. we, we, we don't need the pain. Yeah. We need the pain relieved. Right. And what do we do? If we need some pain relief, yeah. Well, it's very important, and this this is the <laughs> dilemma, right? Is that because it's you know when people really need pain medicine, you know they really need it, and nothing really can take its place. However, having said that, 
you know, we have 5% of the world's population, but, but we consume 80% of the world's painkillers wow. in the United States. Wow. So we're used to prescribing these painkillers much more often than, than most, of the, most of the world. And, and in other countries, they use other kinds of pain management strategies other than opiates. They're like what? Uh, actually, I don't know. I mean, presumably other kinds of... Not steroidals, tordol, things like that. Yeah, um, yeah. Or, or they um, use other, other medications? Yeah, other kinds of medications, yeah. Gabapentin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure yeah. the names of them. That's, yeah. what, that's what I meant. But not um, addictive ones. Right, right. Or less addictive right. ones. You can, right, right. Yes. And, or less potent ones, maybe less powerful versions. And, and, and there may be other things. physical things we need to do, but, you know, like yeah. ice, right. you know, um, immobility, yeah. you know, uh, physical therapy, you know, things that can help stretching, you know, things that we can actually do, meditation, acupuncture. Yeah. There may be a lot of treatments. Other kinds of things. Now, uh, you know, having said that, the other thing I think that, that can be done is prescribing a lower amount of pills. So I think there's been an over-prescribing, not so much of the frequency of prescriptions, although that's probably part of it, is the actual number of pills that are being prescribed, which is much larger than people typically need or consume. So one strategy is to prescribe only a few pills, and then if the person needs them, that they come back and then ask for more if they need more. You know, in my, I want to hear from – so we're going to you next, Nate. I'm, I'm pointing <laughs> – there's a podcast, so you can't know I'm pointing at Nate, but I'm doing that. Um, our town just had a, had a big sign. I live in Belmont. It had a big sign that said um, opiate buyback. And, it, and I don't think that you were buying them, but it was for precisely what you're talking about. Folks got uh. – a month's worth of Percocets. They needed it for three days. They didn't want 27 Percocets sitting around in there. So they brought it to the police station. The police presumably dump it down the toilet. It's all, it's all done. Um, and it made it easier with no questions asked. It was, so that was a big part of it. There was no likelihood of prosecution, nothing. People just brought in the jars, didn't say where they came from. Maybe policies like that would, yeah, would yeah, be yeah. good. And, and those, those policies are in place all over the country now. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Nate, let's turn to you. I mean – You've lived through addiction, and looking back, although you may not have been aware of it at the time, what were some of the early signs for you that you were in trouble? Yeah, thanks for having me on. First of all, there were a lot um, growing up. I think you know, there, like you said, there were things that I didn't I didn't recognize at the time, but but looking back on it, I think you know the first time, the first time that I used, uh, it, it was just like the the infatuation with it. You know, it gave me like a sense of Social security, you know, I used it as a tool to meet people, to interact with people, to gain friendships. You know, it was it was that was something that I I struggle with. Um, I'm adopted, so you know, growing up in a uh, in a town where I'm kind of where I'm the minority, it's um it was difficult for me to find an identity, and so using drugs and and, and having all kinds of of different drugs, um, I was you know people people wanted to come hang out with me, people wanted to come talk to me. Like you know, little did I know at the time that they re- all they really wanted w- was what was in my pocket. They weren't really interested in getting to know me, but you know, like that that it gave me a sense of purpose that I had been looking for pretty much my whole life. You know, like people people would ask me, you know, like when was the time where you used where you drank alcohol? Um, you know, like reasonably responsibly. And I said, you know, like I think the first couple times that I that I drank, you know, I might have only had a couple beers and. Um, they say like, how old were you? And I say eleven. You know, and, and an eleven-year-old doesn't use responsibly. An eleven-year-old doesn't use, period, typically. So it was those kinds of things. You know, that the early use, the like the infatuation, like I said, um, and like and you know, as as things move forward and my addiction progressed, that uh, you know, I started doing thi- doing things that I typically said that I wouldn't do. There were um, you know a lot of substances that I 
that I swore I would never go near, swore I'd never associate with, and and I ended up, um, you know, uh, one of them in particular was uh, was what brought me into recovery. So that's quite a story. That's so from eleven. How old are you now? Twenty five. So from eleven to twenty five, and how long have you? I'm just curious. How long have you been in recovery? Uh, a little over two years. Good. Congratulations. I mean, I guess you're supposed to say congratulations. That's a very cool thing because <laughs> it's, it's hard work. It's also hard work just to be on a podcast like this. I mean, what's it like for you to talk about this? Um, you know, I've gotten very comfortable, um, you know, since I've been in recovery. It's been I've been approached by a couple of places to, to speak um, about that. I've, I've, I've gone and talked at uh, the high school that I graduated from. I've spoke for uh, Dr. Kelly uh, before. So I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with it. You know, like uh, I'm very much an open book. Yeah. about my about my story and about my my um my addiction and uh you know like that's that's something that I feel strongly about in terms of um advocating for for recovery and 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 policy is that uh if people weren't doing podcasts like this you know and, and kind of being ashamed and kind of running from the fact that that they are in recovery then um you know I think I think things would be a lot different especially for me you know that was something that I learned to to not be ashamed of it at the beginning you know, and that's what I want to try to put forth, I guess, going forward. Do you ever, I'm sure people ask you this, I mean, do you ever have cravings? Do you ever think about the drugs that you were abusing or, or using? Um, I, 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 in the beginning I did. Um, yeah, you know, uh, um, I think, uh, you know, the, obviously the, the physical withdrawals, the, um, the psych, psychological withdrawals too, um, you know, th- those were tough and, and it doesn't really matter, I guess, in terms of addiction and being, um, you know, like kind of hooked, I guess, is the word to uh, to any kind of substance. There's going to be a, a period of withdrawal, and uh, you know, I, I can't put a time on it where I stopped. But there came a point in my recovery where where I stopped obsessing, uh, where I stopped thinking about using every day, where I stopped thinking about the substances. And uh, you know, sure, like even a, you know, a couple of years later, there are times where I, uh, you know, I, I might see something or hear something. Something will be triggered, you know, in in my brain that will. I'll say like, well, like you know, today would be it's you know it's it's the summer right now. It'd be a nice day for a beer, um, but you know it it doesn't really go farther than that, and I'm pretty happy with it. So so you um you used a variety of, of substances, yes. and you don't use any at all now. Correct. And looking back, what really helped you? I mean, what what were the resources that you turned to that you thought were most helpful in your recovery? Uh, when I when I first got into recovery, I. I I joined an IOP right away. You know that was um, an IOP, uh, intensive outpatient, uh, for, and so I joined that, and it was a couple times a week. And you know, I I had heard from from other people. You know, e- even during my my act of using, I I knew people who were in recovery. I heard what they did, and so when it came when it was my turn, I kind of had an idea of of what I needed to do. Um, you know, and so I, I got involved in in an IOP at, at Mass General actually, and then through that, really, I, I've only I've pretty much never said no to um, to anything that's recovery related. But you know, you know, you you fortunately got in yourself into an IOP. But you know, sometimes they say you know you got to hit rock bottom, and mm-hmm. sometimes they say you know something has to happen to get you into it. What personally got you? To go to the IOP because for for a number of years you weren't going to the IOP, right? So something must have happened, or some things must have happened that kind of made you say, "This is the time." Sure. Yep. Yeah. Um. You know, I think I think at the towards the end, uh, I was um, going to going to college in Boston, and I was I was living at home. I had been already kicked out of a college, and that was 
that first college was pretty much the start of my of my bottom, you know. And, and then things progressed, and, and you know, like what my my parents were very aware. They they kind of knew they could see what was going on. They could see it in my face. They could see it in my eyes. And you know, they they asked me. My my mom confronted me one night and, and asked me to uh, to do something about my use. And, and you know, I. I didn't. I refused, and so she kicked me out of the house. And that was the first time that I had ever been like not welcome in my home or with my family. And at the time, I thought this is awesome. You know, I, I have all the answers. I know what I'm going to do. And as soon as I stepped out outside um, and took my first step out the front door, I realized like just how how in trouble I was. I, that how much I actually didn't know. And so you know, I think I think being homeless for a couple of days. Luckily, it wasn't longer than that. Was really a wake up call for me that um that something needed to change, something needed to be different. Because cause up until that point, you know, everything that I had tried had failed. Wow, you were homeless for a couple of days. I was, yes. And that that's the thing. I mean, that sounds scary. That was the thing you just kind of wandered around. Yep, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it was. Uh, I think I think at the time, you know, be, because of where I was um, developmentally. It, it wasn't so much scary as more just it, it was depressing, you know. Like I, I, I had felt like in my you know my family had had raised me to to believe that like I was that I would be capable of doing something you know great. And so those couple days I was you know it was um, four and a half days that uh, I kind of thought about that and I realized you know going from you know it was the summer so you know going from beach to beach you know at night kind of made me realize like there's a lot more to life than, than sleeping on the beach every night, you know, <laughs> as much as, as nice as it may sound sometimes, you know, being, being, but not having a home to actually Well, I suppose to. it's nice if you don't have to do it. Right. 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 Yes. right. So let me just ask you this. I mean, you know, as, as, cause we got to wrap up, but what would you tell someone who's, who's like in the middle of it, who's, who's really struggling, somebody who's young, you know, like you are, what's, what's your advice? You know, in, in terms of getting into recovery, you know, they're, um, I, and I, I tell this to people all the time that there's going to be there's a, an inevitable period of, of pain, and you can ask anybody in recovery that in the beginning it wasn't easy, but if you're patient, I think patience is 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 key. Recovery doesn't happen overnight. You know, like I, I'm not where I am today and talking to you guys be, because I you know I got into recovery yesterday. You know, it takes time, it takes patience, and it takes a lot of courage. You know, I would recommend like getting involved being open to to all kinds of treatment you know we there's so many different types of of treatment there you know there's the um you know the 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 more medical side of it there's like the the obviously the 12 steps uh, fellowships and all those kinds of things there's so many different options out there just be open to trying all kinds of uh, all kinds of treatments because you never know what will click you know i i I certainly tried uh, many of them you know and and then surround yourself with people who are gonna who, who want you to to do the right thing. That may be a cool thing. So, I mean, not only finding the right treatment for you, but finding the right social supports, the right people to connect with. Yeah, I think, I think you know, if I, if I had been, if I had, if I had friends, you know, when I, when I was back, you know, 18, 19, that actually pushed me to move towards recovery, then, um, then who knows, maybe I would have found it earlier, maybe I would have made some different decisions. But, um, you know, I, I, we all kind of know that during that time, it, it's very, it's, you're kind of developing self like identity, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and so you know, for me personally, I was influenced by by the reaction that I got from others. So you know, if I had been, if my peer group had been a little bit different, and had told me that you know that I needed to do something about 
my addiction, then, um, then yeah, who knows? Maybe things would have been different. But um, I think I think in terms of the social life too, and probably the biggest thing that I tell people is that like you can have a lot of fun. You know, like since since I've been in recovery, I've had a lot of fun. You know, like I've had friends who have gone skydiving, play a lot of sports. That's that's been I've been involved in those since I was little. And you can do pretty much everything that that you know quote like non addicts would do. Um, you know, people who aren't, who don't have addictions and, uh, you know, it's just about finding, finding the right people to be with, I think. That's great. Well, so before we end, John, do you have any, any comments about, about recovery and about Nate's situation? Do do you find this to be a common pathway, a common story that you hear a lot? Yeah. Well, Nate hit a number of really critical points, which, uh, uh, which are really important, actually. One is early exposure. So the earlier you're exposed to substances, it increases the risk of, of addiction. So delaying first use is very, very important for alcohol and other drugs, um, even if you do end up using them. The other thing that's very important in terms of recovery is early treatment. We know that people who get into treatment earlier, whether voluntarily or not, if they're exposed to treatment, they have a much shorter time to remission. That's the good news. The great thing is now, as Nate said, you know, we've got a number of different treatments which are evidence-based, which are scientifically supported to help people change and adapt to the demands of recovery, which is very difficult, as Nate was saying. The good news is, is that 60% of people who meet criteria for addiction actually achieve recovery and full sustained remission. That's higher than a lot of people think. Wow. Sometimes it can take people a number of years to get there. But as Nate said, you know, be patient. Don't give up. If you have a slip and you're trying to get into recovery and you're, and you're relapsing, what we know from long-term studies is that if people keep on trying, they get longer and longer periods of sobriety. They learn how to cope with, with demands of sobriety, and they, they get into full remission and recovery. And so most people do. Well, I want to thank you all for being here. For those of you listening, you can get great answers to your questions by going to a few websites. There's addictionanswers.org and there's recoveryanswers.org, which are both Mass General sites. And, of course, you can go to the Clay Center site to get information and to make some comments about addiction and about uh, your own uh, takes on on this podcast. I'm Gene Bresson. And I'm Steve Schlossman. Thanks very much.